I'm your host Helen Douthwaite Teasdale and welcome to Brass Evolution, a show where we explore the rich culture and history of the brass banding world. This episode I chat to Dr Joanna Ross Hersey about her research into pioneering American women brass musicians. We talk about gender stereotypes and the rise of all female bands and the inspiring performers that were part of them. So Joanna, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you all the way from... I'm in North Carolina. Thank you, Helen, so much for having me. Yes, I'm coming to you from the University of North Carolina at Pembroke, where when we're recording, it is our second day of class here in Southern North Carolina. So it's a beautiful sunny day outside. Fantastic. For those who don't know you, could you give us a brief introduction to yourself? Yes, I have been involved in bands since my school days. I am from a small Vermont town. So Vermont is in the north of the United States. My hometown has about 280 people in it and is 29 miles from the Canadian border in the forest in northern Vermont. And so I went through public school there and started playing the tuba in our eighth grade band. And our school was small, three rooms, three teachers, K through eight, and sort of that one room experience, which is actually still going on in some of the pockets here in the US. And I think one of the things we might talk about today, if we're talking about sort of how does gender play a role in musical instruments and bands, and and what does that all look like? And geography is one of those markers. If it's a geography where there's less folks around, there's less sexism with regard to instruments. And so there's this little school in Vermont in the 80s where there were only 15 of us and they needed to form a band. So people are less selective about gender norms. So I took the tuba up in the eighth grade, played through high school, an amazing high school band experience. And then I started playing in the United States Coast Guard Band after studying at Arizona State University tuba. And so my first job and and experience was in that military band setting. It was wonderful. The Coast Guard Band is stationed at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. It's a beautiful location where the Coast Guard officers are trained. And so I did that Coast Guard service for seven years, marching and playing concerts. We also broke out into chamber music and I did a lot of to be phoneme quartet and brass quintet, things like that. But we definitely had sousaphones on a good bit and, and marched around. And now I am a teacher, a professor of music here at UNC Pembroke and an arts administrator, working as associate dean, working on the administration side. And I compose a little bit. I write a little bit of history. So that's me. I just want to say, see when you touched upon the sort of rurality, yes. sort of breaking down gender norms, please get in touch, listeners. So especially in the UK and especially in Scotland, there's some very, very rural areas. Lots of women tuba players, lots of women yes. low brass players, because it's like, well, we need someone to play here. So. Exactly. We don't, we're not spoiled for choice, as, as we say. That's so it. That's it. I hear that a lot. These, these, you know, sometimes mentor and speak with collegiate women or young professional women brass players, and often they got their start either because there was a music educator in their household who knew that these gender norms are, are sort of silly, or they went to some place like I did where, hey, we need a tuba and, and you're the one. So yes, as a band player back in the back row, I kept band going even after I left the Coast Guard and I'm proud to be a member of the Athena Brass Band, which is celebrating our 20th year. That's an all-women brass band here in the United States that gets together from all over. Our members live all over the U.S. and internationally. And we get together and perform maybe once a year, once every couple of years. And so I've kept band going as a performer through my teaching career as well. 
Joanna, how did you get into researching women in brass playing and also in brass bands more generally? Well, it's interesting. And this has been something that fun about your podcast so far is that I think in, in one of the recent episodes, somebody remarked, you know, it could just be seeing one photo or one newspaper article that sparks you and makes you realize that there's more. And that's what happened to me. So I'm a product of that very traditional American classical music competitive training machine, right, that we have. And I took the tuba up. We got lessons. I studied. I I applied. I got into college, and and it was great. I studied with Dan Parentoni when he was at Arizona State, and I was the only girl in the studio. And I played only music by men, and, and all the brass faculty, and all of my brass quintets. It was a very male experience, and I didn't think anything of it. And I wasn't, I wasn't upset by it. It was how what I was used to. Right? It was the norm. I went. That was where and. When I got into the Coast Guard, I became the first woman on low brass and and continued to play along. And so I, I'm not sure I was all that feminist, really, as far as instrumental music. And, and when I joined the Coast Guard, I was young. I won the job at 19. So, you know, maybe say I'm 21 or 22. And one of the things you do in those premier service bands is you get a chance to work in the administrative side if you choose. And I worked planning the tours and also in the music library. And the music library of a military band many of you know, if your listeners are librarians in their bands, it's a, a hub, a center of creativity, big, huge center tables, music everywhere. We have a national anthem, you know, archive there. So the new national anthems come in and requests for national anthems. And it's just super fun. And I loved my time in the music library. And one day I came in and there was a black and white eight and a half by 11 or so photo just laying there, I can still see it all those years ago, on this big library table in this beautiful space. And it was of an all-female drum and bugle corps. And it looked like it was from the 40s. They were wearing World War II era uniforms. And I, somebody had donated it and it was placed there carefully. And I stared at this photo and there's all these brass and percussion and they're all women. And I couldn't understand what I was seeing exactly. And I asked, and you're your podcast, I love it because it talks a lot about the stories in brass playing and how we do pass sure. that knowledge on and write about the museum episode where you were talking about, hey, you know, we, we've got to archive these. We're not taking pictures anymore. But all of sure. yeah. Here's all these themes coming together. So I said, what's this photo? And they said, oh, that's the United States Coast Guard spar band, the drum and bugle corps arm of the spar band from World War II. You should talk to Ralph. And Ralph you know, was a curmudgeon bass player, but he was a historian. And I went to Ralph, Ralph, what's this, what's this band? And I'm holding this photo. And he said, you need to talk to the Coast Guard lady. So then oh. it was this whole thing. And it was beautiful because it was, I was being introduced to research and storytelling, but I wasn't fully aware of it maybe at 21 or 22. And so I got in touch and this was the nineties. So some of the women who served in World War II were still alive at this point. And like all military units had reunions. Right. And so the Coast Guard lady was a wonderful woman who had served in the Coast Guard as a spar. They called them spars in World War II in many different countries. But in the US, the women served first as reservists and then as active yep. duty soldiers, but separated. And so we had the Women's Army Corps, the WAX and the WAVES and the SPARS was the acronym. Semper Paratus Always Ready is what SPARS stand for. And they, they joined women up so that they could take some of those jobs and send the men to the front. And 
they all had bands and are, it's a hugely important area. So another podcast definitely to dedicate to it, but these women's bands, there were bands of color, hugely important trend setting for women of color in the military as well. The Coast Guard had one small band and they had a drum and bugle corps and they were stationed in Washington, DC. And so Lois, this lady who is the Coast Guard lady, they called her, she got me in touch. She said, oh, I'll just put you in touch with the president of their, you know, their sort of alumni group. And she sent me the name and address of every woman who was still living in that picture. (laughs) So it was like a gold mine. And I started writing and they all wrote me back. It was the most amazing thing. It's going to be a book someday, but I did write a book chapter. There's a lovely chapter on the world war II bands. And so this photo, so here's me at 21 or 22 with this photo of these women with all these drum corps instruments, trumpets and, and drums and tubas and I had no idea that that was a thing. And I was going through life with the burden of feeling like the first, but I wasn't. It feels better when you know you're not the first. You can point to the history I'm standing on their shoulders. And so sometimes when we talk about gender, people are over it. You know, they might say, you know, well, what does it really matter if, you know, there's not as many women playing tuba or what does it really matter if, you know, we, you know, it's, we're better now. Things things are uh, less unfair now. And, you know, I think that it does matter because we need to see ourselves in the history. And at that moment in that music library, I saw myself in that history. And so then, because I had left my degree to do the Coast Guard, of course, uh, when you win the audition, you go, right? So no, no worries mm-hmm, there. Sure. I went back to school. And I got a bachelor's degree in women's gender and sexuality studies because the music people at the local, it was, it was hard to do being active duty and only being able to go at night. They weren't, you know, bad or anything, but it was just a difficult thing to accomplish when you weren't free until five. But the women's studies stuff was new in the 90s and their classes were all at night. Mm -hmm. So I got the degree and I did all of my classes with music projects. This women's Coast Guard turned into the book chapter because I wrote it up as my senior project, interviewed all the women, found out their experience and got together with other women that were doing the same thing. So suddenly there I was at a somewhat young age with all this scholarship. And I took all these feminist theory classes and I learned what to call it, what we feel sometimes and... I know it's something that is an unusual turn, but it made sense because I'd already lived an odd, you know, this woman tuba player thing. So, and then I've kept going all the rest of my career researching women, my doctoral dissertation, I went all the way through that was on American women brass players from 1880 to 1940. And by the World War II era, there's a lot of great research. So I wanted to fill in a little bit of those gaps, which we might talk a little bit more about today, but there's a lot of activity worldwide, but especially in the U.S., in women brass playing in bands, as soloists on the vaudeville circuit, as chamber musicians, in orchestras. So there was a lot for me to find and there was lots for me to still do. I just think it's just so, so fascinating that you've just saw this photo and then yes. you've just like with all like with all research, you it's it you start to go down this black hole <laughs> of things and you start to look at all these different sort of areas and there's never enough time to research it all. So and it's so true that that you you need to, as a young person, it was perfect. Not that I couldn't now go down a rabbit hole with a new photo next week, but you know, they trained me all those folks, like, you know, Ralph, who was the bass player, and he helped me understand the Coast Guard during World War II and how important it was. And and as a band's member, you know, doing ceremonies to celebrate anniversaries, um, you know, and commemorations. And when 
I was in the band when we reached the 50th anniversary of World War II and we came to England and we did joint celebrations and remembrance concerts and performances with the armed forces bands in the UK. And it was very meaningful and it gave me a broader understanding. So I, I think that that mentorship that they gave me, all of these folks who were older, teaching me how to research, telling me what to ask, that is something that's really shaped me. And I owe them a lot because now I'm hoping to do it with younger people in the classroom. It's just fantastic. I, I know that when I started doing some research very recently, straight away, there's lots of people who are much more experienced than me who are already in pro- this research is already in progress. So yes, a big shout more. out, everyone helped yeah, me. Yeah. Just touching on what you said about women brass players in that sort of 1800s, 1900s crossover and the sort of family bands and all women brass bands. I know that in the UK, it it is a thing, yes. believe it or not. Right. My goodness, why don't we know about this? But, exactly. you know, there's some people who's done this research. Um, but I think it's a lot more of a topic and a thing in the US in terms of the scale of women brass players. Right. There were um, so many. Yeah, it's. I think we have this sense because we haven't seen you know, me growing up in kind of, like I said, that traditional sort of classical, you know, wheelhouse, we're supposed to be training each other on all of music history, but we only end up doing the things that people considered important. And so there's a hierarchy that goes into what gets taught and what doesn't, right? And so what we think going through our music history classes here is that there weren't any, because when you go through history classes, you don't see them. And somehow there is a sense that they must have just all been amateurs, but that's not true. They made lots of money. And so there's just a reset that needs to happen both with performers of color and also women. So the reset is that we're having this podcast today and we're reminding everybody that, hey, the explosion in the 19th century of brass music, brass banding, right, that happened across the world. And in the U.S., it coincided with some interesting changes in women in the workplace, which are kind of fun to think about. Women weren't necessarily going to college to study brass instruments in the 19th century, but they started going to college and they were very prominent in the different music schools. And so they were learning things like piano and violin. And it's not too hard to learn the tuba if you can play the violin really well. (laughs) So what would happen was we'd get all these young women joining like in my alma mater, the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston that was founded in the 1860s. And they had a thousand some women And only 300 men in their graduating classes at that time, they gave their violin scholarships to young boys. But the women were there studying in all these violin studios. So they had the chops to switch over to brass, even if it wasn't studied at the collegiate level. And as you said, family bands really became a place. You saw that. And something about the family band, I think it's because it's under the protection. Not that family bands always had a dad, but often. And so this sense of like, oh, there's a man in charge. It's okay. So you have these awesome, I I, um, had sent you, Helen, a picture recently that I just bought on eBay. I'm super excited. It was $14. Great investment. This lovely couple in their yard with these two tiny toddlers. 
holding these. It's a trombone and a euphonium and they're they're proudly outside in this lovely front lawn. And I just, I would love to go back and be there. What's happening? Is this two, two three-year-old girl actually going to play the trombone? What's the story? But this sense of pride that the whole family played something, that's definitely a thing. And so you, you see all these young girls playing brass and then they become older. And especially with Cornette, as has been mentioned, you know, on, on this podcast a lot, this sense that somehow cornet soloists are just such an important part of society that it's okay if women have have that too (laughs) we can we can have some women doing that too it's absolutely wild i don't know i don't know why but similarly in the uk and uh, almost certainly across the world that yeah the cornet seems to be totally acceptable but heaven forbid you picked up a trombone or you start to see the other instruments more in the vaudeville time sort of like in that late 1880s and I think part of that is because right cornet as we said we see so many of them it's light and small there's been some research done too that with the gender stuff that there's a sense that if the instrument has the pitch of the woman's voice People are a little more comfortable. So that could be why. And also if it's smaller and it's not interfering with this perceived femininity. So that's why maybe violin is fine, but string bass is different. <laughs> string bass, maybe that's, that's fascinating. Not, so there's some really cool research into sort of our gender perceptions and our comfort level or their comfort level then as well. So we have this, this system where you got all these violinists everywhere. Then you have sort of a separate learning system going on. And like you pointed out in the the show about the picnic, the podcast about the picnic, yep. you both talked about this, this whole thing where you're learning in your bedroom and it's happening in these towns and these bands separate from an established educational university, right? The brass yes. learning is, is, is homegrown. That's happening here too. So there's these two systems working side by side. Women are learning the euphonium and the trombone in their family band or with their mother as a music teacher or what have you. And then there's a whole set of women who are going and getting degrees in piano, violin, and maybe harp. And then they they can't get into the orchestras, like the Boston Symphony and the, the top symphonies are founded in those 1880s, 90s times. They don't take women, can't belong. So they start forming their own orchestras. And at first it was mostly a string orchestra, but then why not play Tchaikovsky? Come on. So they get some trombones and they get some horns and a, and a tuba in there. And that I think prompted more women to take up these lower brass away from cornet because cornet you could see there were some great examples there was a famous violinist camilla urso she was a big superstar lots of people emulated that and then once you have the brass in the orchestras and then of course well why not continue to do it in bands too and so that it blossoms and, and if you had training in one as we know it's pretty easy to switch around and so this whole system was sort of just blossoming separately from the university system where you probably weren't able to study on trombone in the 1870s but I also feel like that's a new area of research for us when exactly that came in you know and 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 where with the violin in Boston which is where I did some of my master's research there was a teacher who was really open to having women Julius Eckberg and he brought in all kinds of great female students and they went through and founded all the women's orchestras where us brass players were all getting asked and so it's, it's kind of a neat way to get around some of the restraints that are in the society yeah it's like how far can we push right. you know we can have a string orchestra but can we you know just introduce a horn you know exactly. it's it's absolutely crazy exactly. but and also like just thinking about this so women joining conservatoires uh institutions on violin or piano or harp you know right. female acceptable instruments exactly. at the time 
are going to become incredible multi-instrumentalists um as you've researched quite a lot i mean people moving from you know violin piano moving from corner all the way down to sousaphone (laughs) you know once you start yeah if you can you can do one it's pretty easy to move around and in the u.s too the other thing which is important here so women were getting a sense of workplace in, in throughout the 19th century. So from 1800 to 1900, the number of Americans who were farming was cut drastically. So it's something like 83% of Americans are farmers in 1800, but by 1900, it's only 33%. People are going into the workforce, they're moving into cities. And through that industrial revolution, there becomes a sense of a woman as a worker in a workplace, mostly in industries like the garment industry. In the South, the laundry industry was a place where women of color were able to have some power and regulate their pay and their lives. They had strikes, for example, and powerful strikes where they were able to get what they wanted. And so the public becomes more used to seeing women in groups with other women for the most part, but like in the garment industry. And so that was something. And then we had our American Civil War sort of smack in the middle in the 1960s. And that there were bands all over the place. So then you have sets of instruments and all these people who could play them. And by the late 1860s, the war is over. Things are expanding. The university system is expanding. The need for teacher training makes more women feel they could be educators. And so there's just a lovely, like we said, a blossoming through the late 19th century of the sense of possibility for women. We don't get the vote until 1920 nationwide in the U.S., but individual states had it earlier. And so it's interesting to see the Americans become a little more comfortable with women in the workplace and these women's bands. All of these women's groups were very successful. They toured, they made a lot of money. It was a a real fascinating thing. People went to see like, how are they going to sound? Even today we find that. And it's interesting because today it's sort of a thing where people might say, well, in 2023, why would we need to have a women's band? You know, as I mentioned earlier, we fixed sexism, right? You know, anybody can be anything. That's not the case. But the idea is that, those unfair practices are over and that the world is equal now. One of the things that I like to talk about is that the U.S. Senate, for the first time this year, crossed 25% of our our Senate is female, which is 25 out of 100. And this year is the first year it's ever went over. I think it's 29% now. And so, but come on, it's 2023. And it's a little bit like that with our brass organizations too, you know, our uh, shouldn't we be about 50% of things? We're 50% of the population. I mean, yeah, I was just going to say that. I, I know, that I way. know. And so, you know, if you said, you know, why isn't the Senate 50% women if the population is 50% women? And the answer to that is not everybody has the same opportunity to get there. And that's a hard conversation people don't necessarily want to have. They would rather everybody had the opportunity to join the Boston Symphony in the same fair way. And they would rather that if you weren't in the Boston Symphony or the Marine Band, they would rather that meant that you just didn't want to do that job instead of that things were holding you back that weren't in place for other people. So these women's bands, you know, I think it's important to still show because one of the arguments might be, well, you know, we'd have more women in these top symphonies. They just don't want to. You know, they're, they're just not there, right? And and so, but if we put a whole brass band, the Athena brass band, 
here's a whole brass band of women, you know, playing the heck out of the cornet and the percussion and whatever. It shows that they are there. And those women's bands in the 19th century, I think, also had that goal. They wanted to show they were there. And so these early band leaders like Helen May Butler, who, side note, started out as a violinist and first formed an orchestra before she formed her military band in this late 1890s time, she was competing with Sousa. She was like, I see you. I see you making that money touring on those trains, all this new train track we laid in the U.S. I see you. Yeah. And she took that band out. It was awesome. So there, there's this sense of wanting to be seen. I think that's an important part of the conversation, too. Yeah, I just think um, with Helen May Butler, having looked at her story a little bit more, just the entrepreneurship yes. is... It's a great lesson. Out of control. Yeah. And today, you know, we really try to push in, in collegiate higher ed. We try to push the music majors talking more about entrepreneurship in the music business. Many of us have degrees in this now, which was not a thing when I was going to school. It should be. It should be a part of it, that creativity of purpose. And that activity is where it's the most diverse, right? If you're working outside the establishment, you're automatically going to be ahead of the game for belonging because there's lots of people hanging out outside the, <laughs> the established order. So Helen May Butler did that and she started these women you know, on the various instruments, filled it in. There's a couple people who are researching her. Pat Backus is one, and Alexandra Zaccarella is another. She's doing some presentations right now. Pat is a cornetist in the Wisconsin area who's a director of the, the Milwaukee Festival Brass Band. Pat Backus used to go around and do a great, she dressed up as Helen May Butler, and she would go around and conduct and play and like teach about it, which is really cool. And Alexandra is a trombonist and low brass player. And she has been, you know, using Helen May Butler as a launching point for presenting women instrumentalists with some history. And it's just really neat to see the scholarship in this area rise up. And it's so much easier now to research with things every, you know, more and more each year online, things becoming available. So it's it's an area where we need, like you said before, you know, these these younger researchers that just need to jump right on in because you'll probably find something that we missed 10 years ago. Honestly, see, even before starting this podcast, this is how criminally bad this is. I didn't know who Helen May Butler was. Well, why would you? And, yes. and I've been through the conservatoire system same. here and played since I was 10. Exactly. So yes. why I know. do and, we not and know and about this? Like <laughs> sense that we're supposed to teach the best. We're supposed to teach our young, and this, this itself isn't wrong. We're supposed to teach our young people to revere and respect the best of our history as cornetist, trombonist, whatever that is, right? And so for tuba, you know, there's nothing wrong with teaching about Bill Bell and, you know, Arnold Jacobs, both of whom I had heard of when I was an undergraduate. But sure. you got to add in Connie Weldon and you got to add in Cora Youngblood and those people I wouldn't have been been hearing about in my undergrad. And so let's let's be careful that when we think we're, you know, we're only teaching, quote unquote, the elite, the best. That's just by some random person's definition. So I put Cora Youngblood and Connie Weldon up in the high, high best category that everyone should know about. And Helen May Butler is another example. And I'll shout out to my band, the Coast Guard Band. Helen May Butler also wrote several compositions, one of which is a march called Cosmopolitan America, a wind band march. And the Coast Guard Band has a really great video on their YouTube channel. They performed it during COVID, I think, a, a little bit ago. And it's a great recording that is publicly available for purchase in a new edited version. And that's really cool. I think that sense that we could even play the rep that some of these, you know, that, that Helen May Butler yes. is a composer as well. And people don't know that either. Often you'll hear people say, oh, well, our band would play more works by women, but there just really aren't any. But there are. You just have to look. And that's that second yes. step that we encourage everyone to take. 
I've got to say, Joanna's got some really fantastic resources on her website and you've got sort yes. of handout sheets, audio links. Yes. And we can put some in the show notes. There's a something here that we've started called the Composer Diversity Database, which is you can put in, you know, criteria. I would like, you know, yes. a piece by a Hispanic composer for unaccompanied oboe that was written in the last 10 years or whatever. You know, you can put in your your criteria and there, yes. there is a, starting to be a burgeoning interest in and allowing for this kind of rep to be noted. And, and so there's lots of places that you can look, but, but agreed, it does take a little bit of an extra step. If you are going to continue to program and play what you played as a child, we won't ever shift those gears. I'm, I'm hoping for a, a wealth of findings in terms of new, in terms of compositions that exist out there. Yes. So we can have that older type of setup, you know, the older, we have new pieces being written by a great wealth of people and, and to pair that with some of the older history would be great. Talking about the sort of, le- you sort of said, well, we need to learn about the best. And do you think that the, um, because a lot of the female performers and bands were in a sort of vaudeville setting or an entertainment space setting that we don't learn about them because they're sort of seen as a, I don't want to say this, but lesser art form, perhaps, or not a non-symphony orchestra. Exactly. There's this hierarchy. And I think sometimes that if people realized how much money these women were making, it would change their mind. Because another thing that we use a lot over here to define professional is, were you paid? Mm-hmm. That takes out a lot of the women, you know, like in the sort of, you know, average town yeah. band, right? They they like, like Corey Youngblood, who was a tuba player, who was born in Missouri, but grew up in Oklahoma, she founded a ladies brass band in her hometown in the late, I think it was 1893. And those women wouldn't have been paid, of course, right? It's a town band of women. But then she went on to earn a bazillion dollars. So she she should still get to count in there in that professional status. And so if you use earning money, sometimes you might include more people, but there is a sense that we mean symphony. Yes. (laughs) when we talk about what's a you know or so so we do need to reset of of how we talk about who matters and that's one of the things that I'm dedicating kind of my research to I I keep wanting to put out articles and 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 information about people who were doing great things and they matter too and I think the average person they don't mean to be exclusionary it's not their intent that they leave you know Connie Weldon or Helen May Butler out of their talk if they knew about them and and were inspired to share, they would, they're just doing what they're used to. And so it's not a question of, you know, doing anything, starting fresh. You just, you know, just include more about more than the norm, more than what you're used to. Talking about um, Cora Youngblood, uh, you sent me a fantastic link to some work that I think a relative of Cora has done and it's on YouTube. Yes, James Gregory. Yeah, we can link that too. He's, it's interesting because Cora Youngblood is not a household name, a super famous tuba and euphonium player that not even as she's an American, even as an American, it's not something that most brass players know because her family kept the documentation about her and her life and it never really went anywhere nobody wrote a big book there you know there hasn't been and her i think it's her grand nephew james gregory who was a historian himself of world war 1 military um especially he has a museum job at louisiana state university directing their military museum and is doing phd work in history and he's doing his phd dissertation on cora and there's a great youtube video where he goes through it's a presentation to the oklahoma historical society and everybody needs to watch that it's so inspiring. She was just an amazing figure. And that's a great example of James took it upon himself to get it out there. And I have to share this story with you because it's a perfect example of don't be afraid to be wrong. 
So here's me. I'm president of the International Women's Brass Conference, which is something I served in for six years. This was back, I, I finished my presidency last year. During that time, I helped a lot and did a lot of the social media. And I had these Mentor Monday posts and I, I learned about Cora. I'm going to do a Mentor Monday about Cora. So I Googled, found a photo, wrote up this little thing and put it out there. And underneath, James, who I didn't know yet, he comments and he says, this is so great. I thank you so much for the for bringing you know, my you know, relative to light. This isn't her in the photo. <laughs> <laughs> I was so embarrassed. So it's some other wonderful lady from the 1920s with a tuba who looked could like, but you know, that's because I Googled and I got it. You don't know what's out there, right? It's a, it was a great lesson. So of course I apologized profusely and set up a Zoom meeting with him immediately. And we we found some pictures that we could authenticate as her, but it really was funny that, you know, I'm supposed to know and I didn't even know, right? The president of the Women's Brass, who's a tuba historian, put the wrong picture up because we we just need more resources. We need, so he was wonderful and, and you know, super generous about that, but that's a great example. And that's actually, I've had that happen twice, where in some kind of brass related research, I've had something out there that wasn't actually right. And somebody had to correct me because right, your best guess is sometimes wrong. And that's the beauty of history. So don't be afraid to put something out there and ask for more information. And we can just clearly say, you know, I'm a little unsure about this photo, but it it's possible, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, just share that you're uncertain. And I think that's the way to go forward. Sometimes women's research is too daunting. There's especially women of color, it's really hard to find sources and dissertations are denied because committees feel there won't be sources. Right. And 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 the sense that, you know, we don't want to get it wrong. And and I would advise just go on in and just give yourself a disclaimer and a footnote and say, I'm pretty sure this is the same person and, and any advice would be welcome. And just just set it out there and start the conversation. Yeah, just talking about that, Joanna, I think let's get the information out there. And then I know I'm personally humble enough to say, okay, I'm wrong. Let's correct the record as long as we've got the information out there. Exactly. And that makes it easier for the next person to pick it up. And move it forward if you're missing some crucial piece of information that maybe later is found. It you know, can be that first step. There's a wonderful researcher that everybody should know about, Sherry Tucker, who her specialty is World War II jazz bands. But she's also sort of a primer on how to tell a story when you can't get full. So her book, Swing Shift, you can buy it used on Amazon. It's a great book. And it is it does tell that World War II story. But again, she's interviewing women. It's about jazz. You know, sometimes sexism and, and experiencing sexism isn't something people want to talk about. And, and more often than not, in fact. And so she was trying to interview these women and get the story. And and, and it, sometimes people don't want to talk about that. I noticed that with my World War II women, they, they didn't want anything negative coming out. That was a time when the country pulled together. And, you know, and if I pressed them and I said, well, you know, was was there any time you remember when you felt, you know, you were treated? Because again, these women in World War II, they were freeing a man to fight. Yep. This was serious stuff. They were putting men on those ships because mm-hmm. the Navy ran, you know, the U.S. Navy women ran all the communications in D.C. They had a band there. It was amazing. And the Coast Guard women, same. And so they were freeing men to go on these ships. And, and it was a really, they were hated and maligned and they didn't want them to join. And so, you know, if you press them, the women, they, they would say like, well, there was that time, you know, we went in and they they stole all our hats, you know, like they went into a restaurant and, and somebody stole like part of their uniform. So they have to walk around uncovered and which is against regulation and, or little slights or things like that, 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 you know, they, they would admit to, but storytelling is tricky because you want, 
I would want the world to see how hard it was for women and people of color during the segregated army in World War II. And, and it's it's a little hard to talk about those things and still be positive, but it is so positive because it's growth. So we need to think of research as that, you know, let, let's, let's get a little bit difficult if it's a little uncomfortable. There is positivity to find and we can find that. Yeah, I think I found that with especially Cora Youngblood because if you go onto YouTube or you Google her, the first image comes up is Cora in sort of native dress. Yes. And I think, and through the listening to the research that's done on YouTube, there was an assumption that Cora actually was Native American. Correct. Um, correct. But she isn't. <laughs> so right. it's fascinating. All these sort of vaudeville yes, sort layers. of costume elements, mm-hmm. especially with sort of the the military bands and the quartets. If you yes. look at the if you look at the uniforms and the costumes that they wear, like these big sets, big scenery. Um, it was huge. Yeah. But yeah, that's not a reason not money. to research this. Right. It's an uncomfortable thing. And I think it's important that people understand that changing taste because the level of respect that we are trying to pay to different groups in society was not present. And we can see the, like in the US, you know, this is something we're still grappling with and research that we might do and stories that we might tell like on this podcast and and in other settings at conferences are really important to helping our young people understand what happened, you know, what happened yeah. and, and where did we, how did we get to this point and where did we go wrong and what can we learn and, and all the missteps. It's really important. It's really important to dive in. And if you're a shy person that might not go hold a placard at a rally or, you know, you might, you know, maybe you can write a short blog post or, or contribute to somebody's work that is doing this in a way that feels right to you. But I think we should all be in there trying to tell these stories. I mean, there's just so many, like even just Cora or Helen May Butler, there's just, the, the stories are fascinating. Even from the, a 30 minute YouTube presentation. Yeah, right, it shows the power, yeah. It's incredible. And then I was like, okay, well, what about this? What about activism? What about playing mm-hmm. for the president? I mean, she was on yes. the front of Vanity Fair. Why don't we know this? <laughs> I know it. I know it. And it's this sense that if a woman did it, it's probably not worth including, which I hate to say, but I think that was right. Where is it the time she was all over the press? And, you know, that's just what it's fun to see and to show. And whenever I give, I gave a presentation recently on on this ex- sort of expansion of 19th century women. I, I went a little earlier than in my previous research and people just, they were amazed to see the pictures. I basically could have just stood up there and talked yeah. about the weather and shown all the pictures. <laughs> and she, like I, I shared that I had spent $14 on that little photo from eBay this past week. And, and it's just so fun to to be preserving and helping. So the visuals are fantastic, especially, yeah. yeah, like I say, the women's bands, the brass bands, the costumes, the outfits, but also in terms of Cora Youngblood, the actual manufacture of instruments, especially yeah. for her. I mean, she, at one point she had yeah. she had a dual encrusted euphonium. She had yeah. CG Con making like bespoke instruments for her. There's a whole Absolutely. different angle there that maybe need. You know, yeah, she tore it explode. Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna tick off boxes of like what makes you a professional, this is all these things. (laughs) (laughs) But when we have, do we know when James has finished his dissertation? It'll be really fun. And you know that story exists in so many other places, and we haven't found. Yes, one of the things I'm working on now 
in my presentations, I tend to skim over the 1930s, you know, because like, you know, we have the flappers in the 20s, stock market crash in 1929. Then there's this mysterious period of the 30s and then World War II, right? So in research, you tend to jump over the 30s. And I am now looking at the women's jazz bands that continue to tour. The vaudeville circuit became smaller when Hollywood became a musical center, right? A, an entertainment center. So my one of my next projects is I picked at random one of these small women's jazz bands, an African-American women's jazz band that toured with a tuba, a trombone, you know, small winds and, and they toured all over. And I, there wasn't a thing you could Google and find like a photo on Pinterest. And so I started with a photo on Pinterest, like we've been saying, and now I have, I'm like super proud. I'm going to keep it secret until it's published. But I have this amazing story of these women and the woman who played trombone and tuba and the saxophone player was the sister to the tuba player. And I have this whole story now and that we just need to keep doing that. And, and so my next project is this kind of 1930s time that feels empty, maybe a little bit as, as you know, to American women's history and kind of pre-war. So it's mm-hmm. it's fun to look for gaps and, and go that way as well. Absolutely. Uh, I can't wait to see what happens next. <laughs> I'm so excited to share it with everybody. And, and I actually like one of the things that was interesting, too, is that there's a press photo. The one photo, right, is a press photo in New York City of this band. And they look amazing. They got wigs on and they were, you know, flappery dresses and and. So the photo had the the mark of the photographer. So I Googled and found out all about this famous photographer in New York and, you know, wanted to try to see if I could figure out the date. And it turns out that that photographer has had a book written about him. And so I started corresponding with this wonderful person, an author who wrote the book on this photographer. And he has the collection. He looked through it for me. No, sorry, there's no other photos from that day. I don't have the one I sent him, the one I, you know an image of, he's like, I don't even have the one that you sent me, let alone any of these other ones. And that's in the main collection of this photographer who was the photographer. So these ladies went to the top photographer in New York for their photos and they had all matching wigs and it's the most amazing thing. It's just so much fun when you start communicating with everybody about it, how this history grows. And we know the band world to be like that. So those of us that have played in bands and grown up in bands, the band world is this camaraderie and whether it's a women's band or a town band or or whatever, there's this sense of, of community in the band world. And that extends to the researchers too, which is really fun. I was going to say, I mean, I know this podcast is primarily about brass bands, but we can't speak about brass bands in isolation. There's so many right. other elements, whether that be soloists, manufacturers, conductors, so many elements that feed into this, what we call a sort of a community brass band or a, yes. a brass band set up. So the fact that the US has so many influences from other genres, um, the military Definitely. side, that feeds internationally and definitely influenced things that are happening in the UK and further beyond. So absolutely, it's just so interesting. So much stuff out there that still needs to be researched. Yes, and these themes, like we said, like, you know, what does a professional mean in brass playing? You know, this, those of us who are lovers of brass band, you know, we already are upset because, you know, we know that the term professional might not be applied to some of that history, which makes us upset because we know of what quality we were dealing exactly. with. Exactly. You know, That's these, it. Yeah. High, high level, quote unquote, amateur, right? And, and in the brass band world, we don't even say that. That's not part of our we don't talk about it like that, but, but outside. And so I think we can really all benefit from some conversation about, you know, this music business is bigger 
than we teach our students and even now still. And it's so much richer and more fascinating than simply the Boston Symphony was founded in 18, whatever, and, you know, played seven concerts, whatever. So there's there's a lot more to tell. And, and so that's why I'm really grateful that you're doing this and that your guests are doing the work that they're doing, because all together, we can really keep the movement going. Thank you so much, Joanna, for this conversation. Uh, we could go on for hours, we could. Uh, but I'm not going to keep you. <laughs> Joanna, where can people find out about your work? Well, I have a website, JoannaHersey.com, and I'm also going to encourage our listeners to look at the Historic Brass Society. I serve as secretary, membership secretary for the Historic Brass Society. That is a group that deals with brass history way back. Some people tend to think it's, you know, Baroque trumpets and things, but it's actually all the way through until the 1970s. We sort of consider, you know, that that era to still be historic and worthy of scholarship in the HBS has a peer-reviewed scholarly journal that comes out once a year, as well as two electronic newsletters. And I run a column in the newsletters called Archive Corner. So I would encourage everybody because our first ep- our first issue of the newsletter is free and open to all. The rest you have to be an HBS member. But I have what an archive corner in the first issue that everybody would be able to see for free. And in that, I showcase kind of if you're archiving, if you're if you're looking for things that are a little harder to research, like you know, like make band history and women and and diverse musicians, where are some places? And it's global in scope. And so the Historic Brass Society is a great resource. You can follow them on Facebook and Instagram. And I also just became treasurer of the International Tuba Euphonium Association, which has a historical arm. And they we just had our 50th anniversary. So I work with those organizations too and, and have activity. But don't forget the Athena Brass Band, which is a nonprofit organization you can donate to. And they are working on commissions for Brass Band by Women and showcasing rap by women in our concerts. And it is a female group, all all musicians who identify as women. So the Athena Brass Band is looking forward to playing at the Ohio Music Educators Association Convention in February. So that is our in February 2024. So that is our next upcoming show. We have if you go to YouTube and look and, and type in Athena Brass Band, you can hear us. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Joanna. And Best wishes for the future. I would, I would like to have even more conversations and yes. I'm looking forward to all the research coming out and everything that you do in the future. So thank you again. Well, thank you so much, Helen. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. If you like the podcast, please help it to grow by liking, sharing, rating and reviewing. You can also support the podcast by leaving a tip or buying a perk, including asking my next guest a question or getting a shout out via pod inbox, link in the show notes. Every episode, a portion of the ad revenue is donated to an organisation chosen by our guest. This week, it's the Athena Brass Band. Podcast music is Mephistopheles performed by the Illinois Brass Band. <laughs>